Hello, and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 39. You know, support material is a key enabler of creating parts that don't exist today. And there's no other way to manufacture that we're aware of. Um, and so instead of just looking at support material as a just something that holds up your simple shape, the exciting things you can do by thinking of support material as a key component in the design. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 39th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays. Our guest today is Jeffrey Cernohaus, PhD, Executive Advisor of Infinite and COO of Interfacial, a Nagasi company. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Talking Additive. Thank you for the invite, Matt. Looking forward to it. So I tend to like to start all interviews with the question of how they first encountered 3D printing, because it's always different. What was your route in? Yeah, so it's actually quite an interesting story. Um, my former business was called Interfacial Solutions. I, I'm a former 3M scientist. I'm a PhD organic chemist by training, but I, I left 3M in 2003 and started a business that did custom materials development for the plastics industry broadly. And what had happened was I had one salesperson, just young and right out of school, and she was at a big plastics trade show called NPE, the National Plastics Exposition. And this was back in 2006 timeframe or seven. And it just so happened that my technical director was also there and his wife was at the pool. And it just so happens that somebody from Stratasys' wife was at the pool. And so long story short, the spouses started talking and decided that the company should work together. <laughs> and so um, literally what happened is then Adam turned it over to Ashley I didn't meet these people. And so after the trade show, Ashley came back and said, hey, you really need to look at this 3D printing technology. And it's really interesting. And there's a company, Stratasys, here in town that, you know, maybe we should do business with. And so I looked at the website and I saw that at the time their machines printed models of ABS. And so I told Ashley, I don't see how we can help them. And so literally, Ashley hounded me for three months straight until finally I said, okay, set up a meeting and I'll go take a look at Stratasys. And so what happened was I went and I toured Stratasys and I saw the red eye group and all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, this is customized material solutions and this is distributive manufacturing in the future. And, and so then it hit me. Everybody likes to think they're smart, but the first time I saw 3D printing, I had no clue that it would lead to where it did for me personally. So then what had happened is Stratasys, we got to know Stratasys, nothing really happened, but then they ran into a very problematic material issue. And so almost overnight, they had called us up and that led to a project. And before I know it, they became a very good partner. 
And we were doing development work to create next generation support materials as well as build materials and manufacturing the, not the filament, but the compounds for them. And so this was back in 2008 to 2013 timeframe and right before 3D printing really took off. So they became a, a pretty good customer of ours and we helped them out. And then uh, effectively over a beer, they offered to buy my company in 2013. And so that transacted and I became then the general manager of what my 40 people moved over and it became their advanced materials division or center. And it still is to this day. But I left <laughs> after two years. So. so you created the advanced material program for them and then headed out. Mm -hmm. When did you head back into making materials for additive? Yeah, so I had a a three-year non-compete, and so I had worked kind of as the general manager for two years, and I was 43 at the time and not really ready to retire. And what had happened was Stratasys was about high single digits of my business when they acquired us, and there were all these other companies that we did development work for in the plastics industry, like Anderson Windows, and Integris, and, you know, just a whole number of companies, every composite decking company you know, in the U.S. and almost everyone. And so Stratasys didn't really care about those companies. They cared about my team developing materials for the additive industry. And so for all practical purposes, they walked away from that business. And so then I had customers that I had done work for for many, many years who basically asked me to get back into it. And so I said, okay, um, and started back up and rebuilt. And so then my non-compete expired uh, three years into it. The one area that I knew was not so well known at the time because most support materials were captive at the time. Stratasys was always after, you know, a high temperature support material for engineering thermoplastics like Peak and Altem, and ideally one that worked with just water soluble. That was kind of one of their holy grails. And so just like Infinite's current kind of motto, disruptive materials by design, we don't really like to spend a lot of time developing me too products. We, we like to spend time developing me only products and, and products that are highly differentiated compared to others that are offered in the market and really walk the walk, if you will, and talk the talk. So literally the day after my non-compete expired, I had acquired an Arborg Freeformer, and I was the first person in the United States to buy one. And, you know, <laughs> for an entrepreneur to shell out a quarter million dollars for this printer, you know, most people think, I've got a screw loose or something. Well, the, the reason I did it was it used pellet feedstock, and we could do rapid iteration, and it also had a heated chamber to the time about 150 degrees C. And it could print high temperature engineering plastics like Altem 9085 and 1010. So for those reasons, I bought it as a development tool. And we screened 300 formulations in three months and basically came up with a system that ultimately became Aquasys. Stratasys just, they've been um, extraordinary partners. Even after, you know, the transaction, some former Stratasys executives were consulting for Nagase. So Nagase is my current partner. Nagase had, over a period of many years, built business in the UV curable, kind of VAT and uh, DLP and 
SLA type business. And so they have, they have core competencies in monomers. And so in fact, they sell quite a bit into a couple of the key printer OEMs that are into, you know, different industries for SLA. And so Nagasi was looking to broaden their portfolio into thermoplastics. And so two former Stratasys executives were consulting for Nagase, and they had said, well, you know, you might really want to give Jeff and Larry Dorr, who is a former partner of mine, a call. And so literally we got a call and that led to an introduction to Nagase. And we had already um, on the Freeformer printed Altem 9085 with the support material successfully. And the other thing that Nagase was shocked to find out about was we were using trehalose. And so trehalose is a food additive. It's a sugar substitute that is a highly thermally stable disaccharide. It's utilized in the Asian market as a kind of uh, sugar that has a, a much better dietary profile and prevents insulin spike and this kind of thing. And they have a whole market for it. And Cargill is their largest customer. And so here's this little company interfacial consultants buying trehalose. And they're like, what are you doing with trehalose? And so if you go back a long way, I worked for the Adhesive Technology Center at 3M. And one of the key issues with support materials is getting them to adhere to different build materials. And so effectively through the combination of food science and material science and plastics and adhesive science, we were able to hybridize a system that was kind of the best of all worlds and highly differentiated and was also water soluble and environmentally safe and did not thermally degrade and it became Aquasis. So that led to a joint venture with Nagase in 2018. And then as Nagase got to know my business better, you know, outside of additive, they basically decided to buy the interfacial business. And so March 19th, 2020, they basically acquired 75% controlling equity of interfacial. And so that is the story of how I got together um, with Nagase and Stratasys. And, and now I'm very excited about what we're going to be doing in the future to impact this industry. You talked about how you and, and your team like to tackle really tough problems, uh, not just uh, repeat what people are doing out there. So I want to hear more about the road to Aquasis and how this approach is different than other water-soluble materials that are more common. Yeah. But before we get there, wanted to hear just a little bit more information about Infinite. If you were introducing folks to Infinite for the first time, what all do you do in addition to Aquasis? Sure. Yeah. So Infinite really was, again, the joint venture that was focused on the additive manufacturing market as well as e-commerce. Okay. And so, as I mentioned, our tag is Disruptive Materials by Design. And we started with support materials because we felt like there was a, a large gap in the market, especially for just tap water soluble, high performance, excellent adhesion properties, high temperature resistance, thermally stable, environmentally safe. We thought that there was an opportunity for support materials. Infinite is about more than support materials. It's also about creating new to the world build materials, as well as customized material solutions for the additive market. At Rapid of this year, we launched our Caverna product. So Caverna is basically taking a water-soluble support-type material and uniquely processing it with 
a build material, in this particular case, polypropylene, to create a microporous material. And you may ask yourself, well, why would you want a microporous material, you know? So it's the only way we know to print a foam, and specifically a foam that has continuous channels, not a closed cell foam, but continuous channels. And so there's some very unique attributes of a material that has these properties. For example, in a filtration type market, the channels are three microns. And so water and liquids do not pass through until there's a certain threshold of pressure. And that can be attenuated by how wide those channels are. In this particular case, it's about 100 PSI. And so another attribute of this particular Caverna polypropylene is that it has extremely high moisture vapor transmission. And so what that means is that for people who want to, for example, print casts for their or orthopedic devices, now your cast is breathable. And, you know, anybody who's ever had a cast, I haven't, but one of the big problems, they get itchy, you know, there's your skin gets irritated. They cannot breathe. Okay, so you, you, it's effectively your skin is sealed. Your skin needs to breathe. So we're sampling it into markets like that. Another interesting aspect of Caverna is that it has extremely low dielectric constant, 1.2. So that's air is 1.0. Mm-hmm. So for housings for 5G, 6G type applications that require extremely low dielectric constant, this is potentially, you know, material that could add some extreme value. And so we have a whole series of Caverna grades coming. And the reason I, the reason I highlight Caverna, obviously with our Aquasys products, they're unique in their sense in that anybody that's used Aquasys 120 knows that despite the fact that it's soluble in just warm water and adheres to a whole variety of different engineering thermoplastics, as well as regular type build materials like PLA and ABS, it effectively does not uptake moisture, okay? And so you might ask yourself, how in the world does that happen? How can you have, you know, a filament sitting out on the printer for months? Because if you do that with PVA, after two or three days, you might as well throw it in the trash, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Because... It's not, I, no offense, I know Ultimaker sells a lot of PVA, but, but this is the truth. And so um, you can try to dry it back down. But the reason is trailose again. Trailose is used in foods, even though it's a sugar type substitute, it has high moisture vapor barrier. And so the way it self-assembles at the molecular level prevents water vapor intrusion. And so there's some real serious material science that's been built into these particular products to make them the best in the market. And so I think um, where we're heading on the roadmap for Aquasys, obviously we have our Aquasys 180 product, which works with the higher temperature engineering thermoplastics like Peak and Ultem. We're working to drive that window even further to higher and higher temperatures. We have had requests for 300 degrees C. Um, for certain applications. We're also working to create a best-in-class, what I'll call general-purpose type support that is completely eco-friendly, has some of the same attributes of Aquasys 120, but is designed for the masses. So far, and we're hoping to launch it in the near future here, we're expecting it to dissolve with room temperature water uh, as much as 10 times faster than PVA. And so 
with incredible fidelity and resolution relative to PVA. And so this is uh, obviously, you know, something that we were creating to build out our entire portfolio. But even for those lower end general purpose type products, they have to live our brand and they have to really deliver superior performance and, and results. One of the next products we have coming with Caverna is a soft touch. So to give people the ability to print a TPU that's as low as 30 to 40 Shore durometer. So really, oh, wow. really soft touch. Wow. That's really soft. Obviously, the whole footwear market has been after yep. um, that type of extremely soft feel and touch. Uh, Caverna propylene itself almost has the touch of leather. So because of its microporous nature, it has this very unusual aesthetic feel. So for example, you can envision printing all-in-one breathable footwear, you know, because vapor again breathes. And so if you do it out of multi-material with softer and then stiffer, you could have a, you know, piece of footwear that completely breathes, but then when you're submersed in liquid water, keeps your foot dry. Almost the way Tyvek and house wrap works. So these That's are amazing. some of the things that we're kind of kicking around and, you know, hope to build out the portfolio so that we can really help people create products that there's no other way to create except for, you know, by 3D printing. I've had a lot of conversations with footwear experts, people looking to bring additive into, into footwear, and they're all asking about, you know, various foams and mm -hmm. and uh, and softer materials uh, to use in combination to create various effects and to try to, in general, eliminate adhesives. Um, yes. And this sounds very exciting. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to take a step back and talk about PVA. So, I mean, you, you teased me a little bit that, you know, yeah, Ultimaker has PVA and you're not in love with the performance PVA. But I wanted to point out that there really weren't a lot of options for water-soluble. Oh, sure. uh, there are a couple other dissolvables like HIPS, but we didn't like the... Um, individuals understanding the safety implications of limonene, Solid. et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we've been pretty happy with it. But mm -hmm. uh, in this industry for 20 years, it's been an option that people consider for this kind of thing and one that we've made do with. So I wanted mm -hmm. to talk to you specifically about how PVA is used and found a route to a better experience, because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason we targeted the higher end of the market first was there just really wasn't any solutions there. And so to build a brand and a, and a reputation and, you know, coming from nowhere, that's why we targeted the higher end. One of the biggest challenges with the support material is in order for it to properly function, it has to have the right balance of adhesion and stiffness under the build conditions and resistance to flow or melting when you print on top of it. It has to have the right thermal stability and dissolution, you know, kinetics. And so this is a complex problem. And so now when you overlay that, ideally you want a universal support material that works with all materials. Now this is a huge problem related to adhesion science. And because surface energy and the characteristics of build materials, if you compare polycarbonate to polypropylene, for example, to PLA, PLA and polycarbonate are very high surface energy. Polypropylene has a very low surface energy. And so 
like oil and water, it's very likely that if you create something that works with polypropylene, it's not going to work with polycarbonate or PLA. And so to some degree, we were a little bit lucky. We knew we were using an adhesion term, tackifying a water-soluble material to make it act like a pressure-sensitive adhesive at those conditions that you're printing, okay? So that was by design, all right? I think where we got a little bit lucky was the breadth of materials that Aquasys adheres to very well. Even things like PVDF, and I mentioned polycarbonate, polypropylene. So Arberg sells their RMAT-12 that we've created as an Aquasys-type material and exclusively for polypropylene. And, and so solving that material science issue and really finding a material that is quite universal, you know, that adheres to everything from peak down to polypropylene and PLA, that, that is uh, not easy. And quite frankly, if our Aquasys 120 didn't require heated temperatures, you know, above 50 or 60 degrees Celsius, it would work beautiful for PLA as well. The problem with PLA is that PLA will deform at the temperatures that are required to remove Aquasis 120. The problem gets even more difficult as you go to higher and higher temperature engineering thermoplastics because most water solubles degrade at temperatures you know, above 200 degrees C. And now you want to have something that has a certain modulus at a build chamber temperature that is 150 to 200 degrees Celsius and needs to be thermally stable for 24 hours, depending on how long the build takes, this is a huge challenge. Our Aquasys 180 is very good, but it's not perfect yet. And so we've, we had to create a whole new strategy for support materials to balance the rigidity or the modulus at temperature, but still maintain dissolution and thermal stability. Quite frankly, those materials are extremely unique in their own right, with some imperfections, Innovation is a continuous process, but Aquasys 120 really is a good material. It is very easy to use, works with a whole variety of build materials of engineering thermoplastics. Like I said, the only gap in our portfolio right now is something that, at least in the, in the closed system market, that's where a lot of the engineering thermoplastics are used today. It's more and more heading toward the open system market, but the open system market is still dominated by PLA and ABS and some of the prototyping type materials. And so um, with Aquasys general purpose, that's gonna be you know, specifically for that market. And we're gonna use some of the tricks that we learned when we created the other Aquasys grades to make it dissolve extremely fast at room temperature, but also still have some of these attributes of shelf life and um, outstanding print fidelity. From the perspective of our Ultimaker customers, I know there's been a lot of really interesting engineering materials, composite materials that have been created that, that suit the temperature range of our equipment. But in many cases, it was a little bit disappointing when you have the ability to, you know, to print any geometry you want, but those overhangs can't be solved the way you can with some of the drafting materials. So Aquasys has been really useful for those kind of products because, first of all, it interfaces with them better than some of the other options, but also it, it allows you to kind of regain the ability to not have to, you know, do as much design for 
changes to parts because you can dissolve the pieces away. What are some examples of combinations you've been seeing, particularly with Aquasys 120, that have opened up new capabilities? Yeah, I would say that um, what's interesting, I, there, there's been a lot of activity in, in uh, nylon and carbon fiber-filled nylon with, at least in the Ultimaker-type platform with Aquasys 120. And, you know, those go into higher performance kind of jigs and fixtures and other types of applications like that. So I think that's been one. Another more recent success that we've had that we're looking to promote uh, that I think is actually relevant to the Ultimaker platform as much as several others is the soluble core and kind of investment casting type applications. And so I can't mention the name, but we've had a very well-known automotive brand, very high-end, that is using Aquasys 180 for carbon fiber layup. And so, again, in that particular case, the Aquasys 180 has to survive five or six bar at uh, 130 to 150 degrees C during the curing of the carbon fiber layup. And so then it can just be washed away with water afterwards. And so this this allows incredible design freedom and utility, no harmful organic solvents to wash away a different type of support or harsh chemicals. And so since Aquasys 180 does print very well in an Ultimaker, there's a very low barrier to entry to start printing high value parts and components, even if they're temporary for another process in applications like Soluble Core. We had an, another application for investment casting that started with 3D printing and then went to injection molding of our material. And so in this particular case, it was actually for an aerospace company and for air fans of the motor. And so where effectively they printed a very complex geometry, hundreds of these, and then used that to uh, then create an investment casting in a ceramic and then pour metal after the water soluble is removed. To some degree, a challenge in this industry is just getting to and educating the end users with the right products in a market that is extremely complex and extremely fragmented. And so that's, that's actually one of the big challenges that we're looking to try to address with the next phase. Well, you had mentioned at Formnext, you'd sort of announced that you're creating an advanced training center there. At, engagement, at customer engagement center, yes. Yeah. Uh, tell Talking Out of Listeners about that site, what, what you're hoping to do with it. So we call it Empower 3D. And if you look at what the interfacial business has done, and, and to some degree the IMS business, even though that's our brand for additive for proprietary products, the interfacial business, what we did for Stratasys, what we've done, you know, when we incubated IMS, we create customized material solutions, okay, for companies all throughout the different industries and different verticals all over. And most of our businesses, we have direct engagement with end users who have a specific need and need that material science solution. In the additive manufacturing market, for better or for worse, the end user relationships are, are dominated by resellers. We all need resellers and we love resellers, but um, at the same time, to really get the voice of customer and solve customer problems and really drive adoption of the technology, whether it's my products or your products or whoever products, I really believe there needs to be a holistic perspective and, and a perspective that is almost agnostic to really focus on helping 
end users solve problems and helping them develop and engineer and find the materials, the tools, and get them proof of concept of that application and a proven path to a return on investment so they can make that investment confidently to deploy additive more broadly within their organization. So Empower 3D is really geared at that. So we're investing in printer platforms. We already have a variety of Ultimakers, but for example, we just bought a Titan machine that prints obviously monstrous type machines. And we have the Arberg new uh, three-headed monster that um, is really designed for more of the medical market and can print pellets directly. We've invested in SLS and we're gonna invest in SLA and, and all types of uh, systems with the goal of providing customers an experience where we can help them design the material, select the printer, design the part, print the parts, prove the concept, reiterate quickly, and then ultimately let them go and deploy the technology. And part of that will also be, I'll uh, call it educational seminars that we'll be throwing. And so we're really uh, right now just in the early stages. Um, we do this quietly for companies currently. So we have multiple end users that the interfacial business has been working with. And it just occurred to me, especially after trying to kind of scale and proliferate in this particular industry. So, so that's what we're going to be doing. And we're hoping at the end of the day, we'll sell more support materials and more, you know, of our differentiated products, but that that's really not the core reason. It's really more to help drive the industry forward. Would you be willing to list out the kinds of industries that you tend to work with? Sure. So, I mean, it, Obviously, we're kind of all over the map, but Interfacial is very active in, and infinite, in the building and construction industry. So that's probably our top industry at Interfacial. The transportation industry is our next industry. And this is why I say, even though we're involved in 3D printing, every Amazon van that's running around the U.S. has got a floor in it that my company produces. Okay, So that's not out of 3D printing processes, but it uses sustainable recycled materials that you know we produce and winds up is extremely durable. We're also very active in the microelectronics industry, the consumer goods industry, the cosmetics industry. We have a potentially very large customer right now that uh, basically sells coffee, who you would know. Um, we all recognize their brand. Um, and that's more for a uh, marine degradable, high performance, packaging type application. Uh, that's another area that we are pretty serious about at Interfacial as well as uh, at Infinite. We launched at Interfacial our Entropic brand in the plastics industry, and that is a high performance, high heat resistance, marine degradable compound. And so we're thinking about that particular brand in the 3D printing market too, in both filament and pellet type feedstock. So that's another thing that's kind of on our roadmap and we're kind of deciding if, you know, we go full bore. So the reason for the brand name Entropic is that obviously um, entropy is the natural migration of order to disorder. I like to tell uh, my kids, um, life is a battle versus entropy, okay? <laughs> so. What entropic means is that we are designing materials 
that are entropically sensitive, that we're thinking about them degrading in a very thoughtfully designed way that dovetails with the specific application. So rather than creating something durable that will just function, now if we think about it entropically, such that it's engineered for its life and its end of use, that's a much more difficult challenge. And so that's what we believe our Entropic brand signifies and represents in a brand promise. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about how sustainability is a key focus? I mean, you shared an example right there of a, of a new project. Yeah, so what, what, what's interesting about my business is that, um, and I'm speaking more of the interfacial business, since we've done kind of material development research for companies and more of a fee-for-service for years, okay? And so what that's meant is that we've always been involved in projects before money started to flow to them, okay? And so it was 3D printing before the boom. So we kind of knew about 3D printing before it was the rage, okay? And so nanomaterials were at kind of that same time. And then it moved into bio-based materials in 2008, 2010, 2012. And we actually worked on bio-based you know, materials for plastics, including for packaging and for um, a whole variety of different applications. So all of that time, it was driven by big brands. You know, I had a project for a biodegradable alternative to styrofoam, okay? Why did that happen? Because Walmart was beating on this poor manufacturer of styrofoam coolers, saying, I'm sick of our brand on that cooler floating down the local river and building up at the bend. And we don't want to see our brand. We want it to just poof, disappear. So I guess what I'm trying to say is historically, we were involved in sustainability, but almost by just listening to our customers, okay? Now it's become part of our organizational DNA at Nagase, as well as at Interfacial and IMS. We are always engineering products to think about carbon footprint and end of life. And last year we processed 12 million pounds of recycled plastic, okay? And they came out of, you know, recycled films. And so, we didn't build that business originally because <laughs> for sustainability, but it's become really, really much more thoughtful and important because more and more companies are engineering it into their core values and carbon neutral promises. And I still think there's a big gap. You know, many companies have made promises they're going to be carbon neutral by such and such date. I don't think they really know how they're going to get there. So with that is opportunity. We're in it, you know, as good stewards, but also to help solve problems that the world is facing. And I love that uh, while it's a good problem to solve, it's also a tough one in the sense that you have all these functional goals as well as just taking the whole apparatus of material design and saying, not just making this for permanent durable, making it for specific durability. Uh, that's really exciting. Yeah, it's extremely complicated. It's extremely difficult. But um, nobody's ever accused me of not trying to tackle a difficult challenge. <laughs> so, And my team. So I've got a great team. And these are the types of things that we love working on. So you and I, several times in the past, including in a webinar, I've talked about support material and 
why it's important for additives. But why don't you summarize from your perspective, having seen this since 2006 yeah. uh, as being a, a core need for additive? So there, obviously there's the needs for overhangs like you suggested. And, um, you know, nobody really wants to use support material, right? It's It's kind of a necessary evil. It's just extra cost. And so, um, so I get that. I think where support material becomes extremely interesting is where you start to engineer geometric complexity that there's no other way to create. And so in that particular situation, and really that's what we've kind of done at the microscopic level with Caverna. It's very difficult to create that level of order in a material efficiently and cost-effectively without having the right support material that can be easily washed away. You know, support material is a key enabler of creating parts that don't exist today. And there's no other way to manufacture that we're aware of. And so instead of just looking at support material as just something that holds up your simple shape, the exciting things you can do by thinking of support material as a key component in the design. Do you have a couple of examples? Like, do you want to talk just a little bit more about molding casting applications? And then that layup application is really fascinating. Right. The layup application obviously is um, kind of a, a fin, you know, a hollow fin for the back. There's also applications that have been done in the past and certainly work with supports, you know, or soluble cores for carbon fiber tubing. For example, you could print an entire manifold, you know, out of carbon fiber and the support material is, you know, can be easily removed and now you're left with a very, very lightweight, high performance manifold. So um, I mentioned the fin application for castings. I know that there's actually a lot of conventional type material that's utilized in large investment castings that are printed and they're using materials like PLA that they have to dissolve away with the solvent. And I think as the industry proliferates and the cost of support materials can come down, that's one of the key challenges. People always wonder, why are things so expensive? And in part, it's because of, you know, how niche the 3D printing business is, you know, all over. And it's just economies of scale to some degree. And it's also complexity in the value chain. So I think as the value chain collapses to some degree and um, simplifies, this should really help with the cost of these kinds of materials as well. Well, speaking of solvents and some of the like more popular routes for dissolvable materials from, like, say, 15 years ago. I mean, obviously, there are more classes of materials now uh, in the market. There often was a little bit of a challenge finding the right way to discard that material because you, you, mm -hmm. you'd need to process a lot of fresh solvents against the stuff so you could have that expectation of speed so you can know what you can get. And then you'd have a big vat of it. Uh, maybe sitting in a corner in one of those huge old wash stations. Um, what is the discard strategy for Aquasys 120 and 180? Yeah, look, we always tell people because different municipalities have their rules, but the material is harmless, okay? So with Aquasys 120, I already mentioned that a large component of it is trehalose. This is a food, okay? You can, you can eat it, all right? And the other component is a PVA-like polymer. And so they... These are things that are already okay for the most part to go in the waste stream. With our general purpose, it's even going to be more so. And again, it more than 
50% of that composition is going to be something you could eat and that is completely harmless. With our Aquasys 180, there's a 20% of a component in there that's non-soluble, that is more of a, call it a strut, that holds the shape at temperature. And so that can just be thrown away in the garbage, but the soluble material primarily can go in a standard wastewater stream. This is not the situation with stratasysis types of materials. You have to have a hazardous waste strategy to deal with the effluent of those support materials and the solvents or caustics that you have to use to get rid of them. PVA obviously is utilized in shampoos, in all types of different personal care type products. And so it is primarily regarded as a safe player, okay? And so let's say again, you have to check your local regulations, but um, especially if you're gonna dispose of large quantities. And, you know, obviously the saccharides we use can be digested by aquatic life or anything and they're, they're food, okay? So there's not, that's not a problem. So uh, if you look, if you compare that to some of the other support strategies that are man-made acrylic copolymers that have polyacrylic acid or methacrylic acid, and um, they require caustic or base to make them water-soluble. And they also have other components that are not so friendly. In fact, whose base monomers are carcinogens. And that's why they have to be treated as hazardous waste. And it's not so well known in the industry what their composition are. You know, obviously my group knows intimately what their compositions are. And we try to engineer away from those types of solutions. Well, what are some ways that you would like to see industry expand its use of additive? Some things that are being missed the kind of things that you might help companies see when they come to get trained with the possibilities for additive? Yeah, I mean, I think if you just look at every, I mean, we probably have a customer list of, I don't know, three or 400 companies in my interfacial business. And as I go around and even talk to those existing customers, they might have a, you know, an Ultimaker, kind of one printer. They might be starting to print prototype components, you know, that they can do in-house rather than use a proto-labs, they're still not integrated into their manufacturing environment where they're printing custom jigs and fixtures, low-volume components, really understanding the power of the technology and design capabilities and how that can be leveraged to solve customer problems. And then you go to all these industries that could be created that are more mass customized. I mean, obviously the body is one obvious one for mass customization. I think what's less obvious is why aren't, you know, spare auto parts printed this way? (laughs) So for, if you think about anywhere where there's inventory that's gotta be kept for decades, you know, why aren't we walking around in the future with just files? You know, whether it's at the local hardware store in our own home, you know, we're just printing the components we need. And so I think that's the ultimate vision. Um, There's just a lot to connect to get from point A to point B. We all have to be humble about where we are today, but not forget about the broader vision of how this can transform the world. You know, why aren't we printing water filtration devices in third world countries on an Ultimaker? It's an education problem and training problem. So, Jeff, do you have any tips for companies listening to Talking Additive? They're looking to make better use of water-soluble strategies in their parts. 
Yeah, I mean, I think when when most people think about a part, they think about replicating a part that's already existing, rather than thinking about creating a part to solve a more complex problem. It's easier, you know, to think that way. When you think about using a support, don't think of it as just a support. Think about it as a tool that can be utilized to help solve that problem. Whether it's PVA or, or Aquasys, one of the biggest failure modes is if they do get wet, this really makes it difficult for them to print with high resolution and fidelity. And so with PVA, it's more hydroscopic than Aquasys, but if it's 90% humidity and uncontrolled you know, environment and it's not kept in a protective package, it's going to pick up moisture and you're going to have print nightmares. Okay, And so you have to either figure out a way to dry it, but I've had this experience too where people think they can just dry a material that's hydroscopic with humid air. This doesn't help. Okay, so, so you... It has to be desiccated air. Um, otherwise, you might actually be driving, depending on the temperature you're trying to dry it at, you might actually be driving moisture into your system. And so there's a lot of things that aren't always obvious that we've run into. We had one printer OEM, not you guys, but um, who had a heated area within their printer. And they said, well, it's, you know, we just keep it at 70 C. And the problem was that the air wasn't desiccated. And so effectively, they were just fouling the support material, you know, in the middle of summer within hours or, or you know, a day. Um, it would have been better if they would have kept it outside rather than at 70C. So, I mean, moisture is the crux of the opportunity, but also the problem. Thanks very much for that perspective on it. I think that should help listeners see some ways to approach their next support challenge with a little bit more sensitivity to what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Jeff, thank you so much for joining Talking Out of today. This was a fantastic conversation, and it's really uh, excellent to spend time with somebody who's been looking at challenging materials for additive manufacturing and, and elsewise uh, for the past, I guess, what? 20 uh, years. 15 years? 20 years? <laughs> 20 That's years. fantastic. Yeah. 15 years in additive, but so... Yeah, thank you, Matt, and um, thanks for the opportunity. And if anybody ever has any questions on supports or needs a custom material solution, send me an owl. <laughs> well, should they go and take a look at the Infinite Material Solutions? Yeah, they should or? take a look at the website. So, yeah, so and and reach out. We'll we pride ourselves on responding. So fantastic. First of all, uh, Jeff, thanks so much for, for joining. To add some more details to your story here at uh, TCT Rapid uh, 22. So Jeff, when we talked in the winter, you still were in development on some things that you were excited to share you know, soon. And, and now some of that soon has happened, yeah. uh, including uh, what has become Empowered. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what you're doing here at uh, Rapid this year. Yeah, uh, That might be a good context. Yeah, so we have two big initiatives um, and product launches at Rapid this year. One is our Empower 3D initiative and the goal of that 
initiative is instead of so much complexity in the industry, so many competing materials and uh, machine platforms, and what we found as we brought the Aquasys and Caverna products to market was that there was a pretty big knowledge gap in the industry with people who are, were trying to adopt the technology and were having difficulties. So even, even if it's a good platform, like an Ultimaker platform and a great material, like an Aquasys material or what have you, sometimes there's still knowledge gaps that make it difficult for the customer to have a robust and reliable experience. And so we felt that in order to scale, not just our materials, but create you know, strong customer intimacy, we needed to focus on solving customer problems and making sure that they had a partner that could help them solve their problems. And so what we've done with the Empowered 3D initiative is we are that kind of service-based organization that will let end users come into our facility. Uh, we've invested several million dollars in printer technology. Um, obviously, we have a world-class materials development capability and characterization lab. And so everything from material customization and formulation to format and, and feedstock format, whether it's pellet or filament or resin or powder, to uh, printer selection, printer tuning, part design, initial part printing. We want to help shepherd customers all the way through that process. So at the end of the day, whether it's an Ultimaker, whether it's a Titan 3D or what, whatever, they can make that selection and feel good that they have the material, the parameters, the um, ongoing experience that they can replicate in their, in their own facility. So that's the Empowered 3D initiative. To follow up on that, how different is that from the kind of like consultative and, and development work that you already offer? What would the experience be like for the end user that's different than just hiring you to, to solve a problem? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. We've done this in other industries for the last 19 years, really, where people have a custom, they're in need of a custom solution. Uh, and whether that is, you know, ultimately injection molded or profile extruded or sheet extruded or, or what have you, we have been that external shepherd and kind of problem solver. In this particular case, one thing that's different that we're really excited about is we've never really been able to have the entire process, including the process to finish parts at scale under one roof. And so now, What's really exciting to us and what we think is a real gap in the industry is we can provide our customers that turnkey experience rapidly, all the way from idea to commercialization. So that I think it's applying the same model, but more aggressively into the 3D industry. Um, when we had talked in, I guess, in December now, you had been talking about uh, the physical facility and uh, things I might have associated with like a competency center, et cetera, like some of the um, things you were excited to sort of bring together uh, to make it possible to do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Like what would the experience be like uh, for a team coming and, and, and working with yeah. you? Yeah, so, so in our technology center, it's a 40,000 square foot facility that almost looks like a retreat that overlooks the Mississippi River, but it's a retreat, or some people have even referred to it as kind of a James Bond lair or a Tony Stark lair, um, but it's a functional retreat. What I mean by that is that 
you know, we have not just millions of dollars of 3D printing capability, but millions of dollars of scientific instrumentation and, you know, um, a whole slew of uh, very talented, bright, technical people there to help you. And so literally right under one roof, problems can get solved, not in an instant, but in, in a couple of days. And so where you can go from concept right to printed part. We're pretty excited about that. And it's a great place to, after work, have a beer <laughs> overlooking the Mississippi River and watching eagles fly all day. So, Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, now, you mentioned uh, earlier in this, in this discussion uh, that you were able to draw on the kinds of uh, hardware and scientific equipment that you use to, to develop and tune uh, formulations. Will the sort of offering in there, is, is this sort of an opportunity, finally, maybe, for um, some of the end users of the materials to really better understand how materials are developed? I, I think so. I think... There's, although there's a lot of knowledge in the polymer industry, if you will, because of the fragmentation and uh, I'll say niche nature of the 3D printing market and all of the different platforms, I think it's not that, you know, the DuPonts and Dow's and, and those companies don't have initiatives, but the markets are almost so niche to them that they can't really apply massive resources. And so since we're coming at it from a different business model and we're part of a large multinational that gives us capital access, it's easier for us to come at the market slightly different where we're partnered with companies to solve their problems. They have skin in the game. You know, I mean, we, we might put some skin in the game, but at the end of the day, you know, if a customer wants us to create a profile of their material um, on an Ultimaker, it costs them $2,000, okay? That's, not a bad investment, right? If they were to bring that staff or that knowledge in-house and invest in those people, it'd cost a heck of a lot more than that. So as an example. Yeah, this is really helpful. And in particular, thinking about trying to measure getting, you know, outside help versus trying to bring that competency inside. Um, this is something that we've seen across, you know, FFF, for example. Uh, you have a technology that is fairly straightforward to run, but then uh, the nuance of the processing and uh, the counterintuitive nature of some of the settings mean that uh, even those who gain a lot of skills and, and can get to the outcomes, they might still not understand the materials the way the material companies right. do. It's, you, they have to be customized for the, not, and not just FFF, but for each platform and sometimes to even each machine. And so um, there is a great deal of complexity and, and it still is all related to basic material science and physics. However, that doesn't mean that it's not complex. It's very complex and very time consuming to, to do it right. Excellent. Uh, well, I, I'm really excited to see what will go happen with this uh, initiative. Uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping will happen is that those who have a very specific need and have been looking to really kind of zero in things, they'll unlock applications that become really just completely solved. They yeah. will just be running that out, deploying it, because they can now have the confidence that things are really tuned right, and they won't have that, that whole question, you know, as they're running things, like, am I doing this right? Is right. this, am I reaching the full potential what I can on my platform with this material, uh, with, you know, with this, you know, target part? 
uh, they'll have a lot more confidence, and then we'll see more of the process maybe slipping behind the scenes right. and the uh, the focus on making the parts and the route to solve those problems being more the, the thing people are thinking about. Yeah, so I mean, if, if we can be that, I'll say, external champion to help people, you know, weed through the complexity and get to a robust solution at the end of the day, the more people we can help with, the better for not just us, but for the industry and for Ultimaker and everyone. So we, we Ultimaker has nice. been a great partner and we're, we're looking forward to continue that partnership. In fact, your team asked, how can we help? You know, how can we help facilitate the Empower 3D initiative? So I, I'm looking forward to, a, you know, continued good collaboration with Ultimaker. I am too. Yeah. So in addition to formalizing and announcing, you know, this initiative, you also have added another material mm -hmm. to your line, at least publicly. I think yes. you've been sort of talking about that it's coming. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about it. Yeah, so we've brought to market our Aquasys General Purpose product, which is primarily designed to work with PLA and polyesters, and um, whereas our Aquasys 120 and 180 are designed for more of the engineering thermoplastic type uh, materials, support materials. We clearly saw and heard from the reseller network and from customers that one of the challenges with PVA and, and BVOH type solutions is that a lot of times they're great or they're okay right out of the package. But if they're, you know, 24 or 48 hours and, and um, they start to pick up moisture, the, the printing attributes and fidelity start to seriously be degraded over time and they're, they're not very moisture resistant and so obviously it's a water soluble material um, so it's one of those classic conundrums that you know in science you face how do you make something that is completely water soluble in when you put it in water but resist water when it's sitting out in the open okay so those are the perfect types of problems that i'm tend to tackle okay? and my team tends to tackle and so we we're able to do that. So with our Aquasys general purpose, we have uh, now examples where it's sat on the back of an Ultimaker for more than 30 days um, with very, very minor reduction in print fidelity. It still prints just beautifully. And dissolves much faster than PVA. And it also um, has just much better print fidelity, especially with complex geometries. And so that was kind of the brand promise, and it's tied to our discovery with the Aquasys um, materials. And so it's kind of one of those oxymoron type materials. And, and thankfully, we've been able to build a platform of solubles around it. But I talked to, I believe, the team member who was running that test mm -hmm. and, uh, at, at the booth, and, and she was saying that she was expecting it to be a problem like in the, in the she kept waiting for it to not work to fail <laughs> but instead was like wow okay um this this definitely is a huge improvement and measured that even just tearing open the bag and right. uh, of this next to an you know like a um a pva, a PL, PVA um that that there was al already noticeable difference in humidity. and printing and printing yeah yeah so we think it's the support for the masses and it will be you know more aggressively priced than our our premium supports and you know we are hoping to uh, you know work with groups like ultimaker to proliferate it in the market so so far our beta testing has been extremely positive in in fact uh, a couple of resellers once said well this 
behaves just like Aquasys 120, but it's a general purpose type material and dissolves in tap water. So uh, he pretty much asked, why didn't you, you know, bring this sooner? <laughs> and so the devil's kind of in the details um, yeah. there, but, uh, but we are excited to bring that to market now. Uh, well, we, we are uh, participating in, in trying to beta this yeah. within our ecosystem by, yeah. by running it in our booth right now. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and are just watching it and, and thinking, gosh, you know, we can be nervous to, to run PVA mm -hmm. in, in a kind of public environment, especially it's raining outside. It's right. like the humidity in there. We were all, you know, sweating like crazy while setting up the booth. Right. It's, uh, it's, it is the environment that would be tricky. Right. And um, it's not breaking a sweat. Uh, that, gets, that metaphor starts to break down, but uh, it seems to be printing beautifully. So and, and, we, and we have your dissolution tank in our <laughs> booth and it's um, we, we got a European model somehow, <laughs> and so that, uh, that also has been working beautifully with the general purpose products. So yeah, thank you for fantastic. letting us use that. So, Well, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for letting me get this uh, update. Uh, it, it seemed, it, you know, it, it was a great opportunity to meet you in, uh, with you in person to add this, uh, given that we haven't shared yet the, the interview from December and technology keeps rolling on. <laughs> Good. Yeah, thank you, Matt, and look forward to collaborating in the future. Thank you again to Jeffrey Cernahaus, PhD, Executive Advisor of Infinite and COO of Interfacial, a Nagasi company. We hope that you have enjoyed our 39th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag TalkingAdditive, all one word. Talking Additive launches new episodes each Tuesday. Next week, join us to meet Dom Tucci, designer from Tucci Hot Rods. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thank you again to Jeff, Ari, and the Infinite and Interfacial teams. Our episode editor is Paul Pontius of PGP Sound. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Tacchini, studio manager David Roberson, music and sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I'm host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.